I think I'm having an art attack. Welcome to another episode of Art Attack, where we literally oftentimes have heart attacks during the <laughs> art talks because it's a very so intense, emotional. Yeah, it's intense. It's emotional. It's spiritual. It's fun. It's dynamic. And let's be honest, I love just dead air. Let's be honest, <laughs> dead air. It's, I was staring at you like, oh my god, are you okay? No, I just wanted to feel what it was like just to have no. Anything, there's nothing, just nothing. That was, to me, that is the ultimate, like, minimalist contemporary conceptual art piece I've ever done. Was yeah, you're right like there. John Cage. Yeah, that was that, was that <laughs> moment. But, it, but, it, but I felt visual. So I feel like that, if we could somehow encapsulate that and put it on the gallery wall, I could sell that for $110 million at Christie's. I don't think I've ever been happier. Justin Bua, the conceptual painter. There you go. That this was is it. what I've been waiting for. So welcome to another <laughs> episode of Art Attack with your host, Lizzie Dastin, art history professor, and myself, Justin Bua, artist. Uh, going to start teaching art history when I'm requested by anyone at Stanford or Yale and Harvard. I don't want to teach anywhere else. But Screw if you, Princeton. Yeah, fuck Princeton. <laughs> Princeton sucks. But if you guys want me to teach anywhere else, we could talk about it. So anyway, today we are talking about the most famous mustache <laughs> artist <Unibrow>. ever. <laughs> and then it's not Manny. It is Frida Kahlo. Frida Kahlo is a fantastic, wonderful painter. I think that you probably know a lot more about her than I do, but we're going to also talk about her uh, in the context of the movie Frida, which was a brilliant, freaking brilliant movie that was whimsical, cinematic. Uh, it integrated all kinds of animated, you know, parts of it. You know what I mean? It was a, it was a really a walk down the imagination and mind of a of of a filmmaker's film. It was a real filmmaker's film. It was a decadent feast. I think that <laughs> Julie Taymor has such phenomenal visuals mm -hmm. and what she was able to activate in this movie. I'm thinking the scene after Frida gets into the iconic uh, trolley accident and her spine is broken and she's bloody and that scene itself is just so exquisite so but in the scene after when she is under anesthesia getting surgery and it's it's like that puppet scene of the the day of the dead and so it's just bringing and relying upon all of these tropes and Mexican folklore and just done in such a simple but illustrative way I really I loved watching this movie and also it's one of those like we talked about Basquiat, I mean, we, you have to show an entire person's life. And she had quite a life. I mean, wow, was her life rife with richness and texture. But to show that in a movie, albeit a long movie, is almost goddamn near impossible. You're talking about an epic journey of a fantastic visionary. And you've got you've to bring that into... Uh, on film is difficult. You can't do that. It ain't easy. I know. To find some kind of hybridity between her art and her life and her relationship with Rivera. Those are three gigantic films on their own. Yeah. But to interweave them the way that that uh, Tamar did, I just thought was so incredible. And I only had a couple of issues. Okay. Uh, my biggest issue is that 
we see a lot of Kaolo's work, but we don't really see Frida in the film painting. Mm -hmm. We don't see her working a lot. We have no insider access into her methods. And we do with Diego. Mm -hmm. We see him when he's doing the famous Mm -hmm. or infamous mural in Rockefeller in New York or Rockefeller Plaza. We see him on a scaffolding. And so we know that there was a scaffolding and we see him painting directly on the wall. And with Frida, we have very, very few insights very few snippets of scenes in which she's actually painting. And so to me, that's kind of problematic because it's showcasing the glamour of a woman who was an artist without actually showing the nitty gritty of a woman at work as an artist. But why, why is that? I mean, it was told from a female perspective, you know, I mean, this was a, a female visionary telling a story of a female visionary. Why is that? I don't. I have no answer for that. You know why? Why did she yeah, make why, that choice? Yeah, or why, she why does it choice? bother me? Well, why okay, she... both. Why did it bother you? And why did it? I know why it bothered you because you wanted to see her p- painting directly on canvas to make it feel like authentic and real and textural. But why did she exclude that? Do you think from the film? Can I you think... get Julie on the phone. Julie, can you <laughs> on the phone, please. Line one. Let me ask her. <laughs> Just curious. Uh, also, Spielberg. I need to talk to him later at 3 o'clock. Oh, Thanks we have so a much. lot of beef with Spielberg. No, I think that it glamorizes the the idea, the perception, the mythology of Frida, that that I is see. more interesting, that we see her engaging in all sorts of bisexual romps, and we do know that Frida's sexuality was a really important... It was an integral aspect to how she lived her life, but so was her painting. And I read somewhere that when she was in a hospital bed, she had a mirror installed on the ceiling, and that's really why she started to be so fascinated by self-portraiture because she was the only subject that she saw. And so if that story, if that anecdote is true, I would have loved to have seen a scene with her in a hospital bed with a mirror on the ceiling. Well, okay, so let's let's backtrack. I think that historically, in terms of cinema and painters, I don't think there's been a lot of very successful uh, movies, documentaries, and... Uh, TV shows where artists are mid-painting. You see it right now in the new Picasso show with Antonio Banderas. You don't really see him paint, and that's because he can't paint, that you need a fucking stunt double, okay? So there's a big, there's a big problem. You do see it, if you guys want to see a great movie, uh, I want you guys to check out New York Stories. And there's three directors, I think it's Coppola, Woody Allen, and Scorsese. And Scorsese does a wonderful film about this disgruntled artist played by Nick Nolte, whose girlfriend is Roseanne Barr, I mean, Roseanne Arquette. And it's a freaking amazing movie. And he does these giant, uh, these giant like 50 foot murals, canvases in his studio. And he's the typical quintessential fucked up, drunk, crazy artist who plays the Rolling Stones as he throws brushes against the canvas. Now, the reason I say that is because you see Nick Nolte painting. Someone gave Nick Nolte lessons. Someone showed him. And I think that's oftentimes during these movies, the artists don't know how to paint. Painting is a whole, is a whole world. It's like if you're going to do a, you know, Tom Cruise does his own stunts. There's very, you know, Jackie Chan was the king of doing his own stunts. I think you got to really kind of, you know, learn. And I don't think that Selma Hayek probably learned how to paint. I totally hear what you're saying. Even remedially. Like how to hold a brush. 
That's an important thing. It is, but then Alfred Molina was shown holding a brush. I'm not saying that she needed to that we needed to see an entire time lapse of her doing a painting, but there was more emphasis on the working methods of her husband than there were on Frida herself. The, but do you think that was a misogynistic like call? I mean, or do you think it was just because Julie wanted the audience to focus in on Frida as a person and not necessarily as an application artist, you know what I mean? As the applicator of paint. I think that's a little bit problematic, that that is a blind spot that is more endemic of society and of things that we should change or we should examine or we should at least acknowledge than anything else. Because this I actually see in Kahlo's work, in the work itself. There's this one painting that she did. It's of her and Diego. And it was based on a photograph taken at their first wedding. They got married, then they got a divorce very, very briefly in 1939, and then they remarried in 1940. So anyway, it's a portrait of the two of them, and Kaolo is small, and it looks like she's about to alight. Her body is really very delicate, and and she just she's lithe. And then that the counter example is Rivera, who looks like a toad, and he's really massive, and he occupies so much space. And it's a really interesting psychological study of the two of them together. Now, to me, what's most interesting of all is that Rivera is the one who's holding a painter's palette and brush, yet Frida is the one who painted the work. And so even within that dynamic, as she is painting, she's illustrating their relationship. She's illustrating it, giving him the preferential treatment as artist. And I see the act in the movie or the the reflection of the movie is we see him working and we don't really see her working as much. I see that as the same issue. Okay. Well, let's go back and talk a little bit about Frida Kahlo because... Uh, as a painter, uh, I find her to be very emotional. Uh, I really like, I love Diego Rivera's work. I think Diego Rivera was quite, quite the artist. Clearly, Frida's not a great drafts person. Uh, she's not. She's, she's an emotional painter. She comes from an emotional spring, and that's where she exercises her greatest achievements. And it's also very symbolic. You know, there's a lot of symbolism to her work. But can you maybe walk us through some of the uh, significant traits and uh, talents and works, achievements of, of Frida Kahlo? Sure. So her most significant work was done in the wake of her divorce with Rivera, and it's called Two Fridas. And we see the canvas is kind of bifurcated. We have the European Frida on the left and then the Mexican Frida on the right. And the two of them are linked in both hand gesture and also through these little blood veins. And that painting is so illustrative of her general style because it is incredibly personal. It's steeped in her biography and it's expressing that she always kind of felt dislocated. She was European. She was half European. She was half Mexican. And so there were these two alternate realities that coexisted within her. And Rivera was very supportive of the Mexican Frida, but not as much of the European. Both of them were communists and Rivera himself was incredibly politically active within that space. And so I think that kind of explains that he's more accepting of one side of her than the other. But I love that she's able to literalize the split by showing herself twice. 
And then we see in Mexican Frida's hand, she's holding a little miniature portrait of Rivera when he is young, which is poignant and nostalgic and shows the affection that the two had for each other. And that painting also shows the self-portraiture, which Frida has become really well known for. And it's interesting. There's this guy named André Breton, who was the spokesperson of surrealism in France. And he saw Frida's work and he thought, she's a surrealist. And he wanted to exhibit her alongside people like Dali or Ernst. And she said, you know what? I'm not a surrealist. I paint my own reality. And Which was surreal. <laughs> Which was surreal. You yeah, know it was. She experienced a lot of physical hardship and emotional hardship because of the accident that she... Well, she had polio. and well, she, she had polio, and then she had the bus accident, the trolley accident. The trolley accident, exactly. Talk about the trolley accident, because what I understand, she was impaled by a pipe that went up her uterus. I mean, you... It, it went, like, I think, through her body. So it impaled her from one side of her hip and then came out the other... And because of it, her spine was shattered, and she was in pain the rest of her life. Right. So she was a real... When we think about angsty artists like Basquiat or Van Gogh or disgruntled artists, uh, a lot of them do go through emotional pain, and, and, and Frida was really living in physical pain, much like Toulouse-Lautrec. Toulouse-Lautrec, most of his life, was in physical pain. He was a dwarf. Uh, the, the mythology is that his mother was run over by uh, a horse, and trampled upon while she was pregnant. Who knows if that's true or not? But the reality is he was he was an outcast. And in the meantime, suffered a tremendous amount of physical pain and therefore became a real intense alcoholic, especially towards later of his life when he drank himself to death. So I could imagine that Frida, who had polio, who was impaled in this trolley accident, was living with a, a tremendous amount of pain. And one of the only reliefs... Uh, that artists often find is getting into their work and getting lost into their work. Oh, absolutely. I think that painting for her was a form of catharsis and also of checking in with her psychological state. And that is why self-portraiture, one of the reasons why it was so interesting to her, because as she's going through these physical ailments and the emotional ones with a philandering partner, and she also cheated. So the two of them shared that that identity but it was really painful for her rivera had an affair with her sister so Damn. she had i know egon sheila as well i don't know if you know that but egon sheila from what i understand egon sheila the great artist slash student of gustav klimt who also died at 27 i believe 27 28 27 he i'm just going to say it because it was all the other people's death basquiat jim morrison Janis joplin and jimmy hendrix and every and kurt cobain but uh, Sheila had an affair with his wife's sister, caught syphilis from her, then slept with his wife again and gave her syphilis, and they all three died of syphilis. Oh, good times. That's, uh, so, real good. And, and, and just a little footnote on Egon Sheila, probably one of the greatest observational draftsmen in the history of the world. And Klimt certainly felt like he surpassed him. But back to... Uh, back to uh, Frida, she felt betrayed often. She was in physical pain. She was in emotional pain. Uh, clearly not enough pain to aestheticize herself by shaving her uh, unibrow. <laughs> That's so misogynist. Well, you know, it was... It was you, but what, which what about self-acceptance? What about seeing... No, I think it, no listen, it was, I was joking. But the, fu- <laughs> the point is that, like, I feel like her... It was something about the fact that it's like, I'm not even going to, like, 
pretty myself up, which was so beautiful. It was like, my unibrow is, is beautiful. And remember, Frida uh, often depicts herself with her hair up and the flowers and her lipstick. And God, I mean, she's just like this, you know, with the unibrow and even painting her little, like, her little fuzzy mustache on there. Like, I don't give a shit. I am woman. You know what I mean? <laughs> da, na, na, na. She, she kind of has that energy, this kind of like pre-Beyonce, Beyonce energy, right? <laughs> and she's really this this really strong woman. Like She oh, owns it. She also, owns it. She totally. dressed in men's clothes and yes. she cut her hair. Yep. And so she's really embodying this idea of an androgynous person, this pansexual being. And that was a thing, a part of the movie that I thought was kind of funny. I don't know if you remember Ashley Judd's role, but she was playing photographer Tina Mandati. That's right. And Frida, she has this really seductive dance with Mandati. And there's this whole scene where she's flirting and and an affair is intimated. And I don't think that is historically accurate. It could have been because Frida did have affairs with women and men. The affair with Trotsky supposedly did happen. And so I, I like that they they illustrated that in the movie. And an interesting fact about Trotsky is that when he was exiled, when he had asylum in Mexico, he actually stayed with Rivera and Kello. And there was an assassination attempt. And guess who did it? It was Siqueiros, one of the oh, other wow. Mexican muralists. And it's so funny to me because People in, after decades have elapsed, people kind of talk about communists as if they're the same, which is ironic because, you know, communism is about uniformity of man. But there was so much dissent within this little communist community. And Stalin was who Siqueiro supported and Trotsky is who Rivera supported. And so they hated each other. And actually, Siqueiros tried to kill Trotsky when Trotsky was in Rivera's care. So I thought that that was kind of an interesting biographical point that was mm. suggested in the movie, but not really as... Siqueiros is a wonderful draftsman, too. Oh, phenomenal. One, wonderful so artist, experimental. Probably the the best in my opinion of all of those guys in terms of like pure talent. He was definitely the most of all of the WPA and, you know, uh, Mexican muralists of that era. He was probably the, the, the highest level, you know, I you, think you wouldn't so want to be Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo wouldn't want to be sitting next to him in a figure drawing class. I could tell you that they would have been like, Oh God, he's fucking good. Well, what's so phenomenal about Siqueiros too, is that not only did he have the skill of being a draftsman and having that technical training, but also he had the joy of wanting to experiment. And he kind of invented aerosol before aerosol was a thing. He came yeah. up with this spray gun that is very similar in, huh. in technique and in concept to a can of aerosol. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, so he's really the first graffiti writer. There you go for all you graffiti. <laughs> you heard it here. Right, it wasn't... <laughs> I thought it, the first graffiti writer was ooh, uh, uh, the cave painter from Lascaux, <laughs> France, who illustrated the uh, coyotes uh, with arrows. No, but I, I, I think that's fascinating. And I, and I think getting back to Frida, I think she really owned everything. You know, she owned her, her work. She owned her look. And much like Basquiat, she was the package. You know, she was a... Uh, wonderfully dynamic, charismatic, uh, like you said, pansexual, you know, sexual, free-spirited, 
dynamic person. And I think with her, the attraction is, yeah, she was a really good artist, but I think the attraction is her whole package, right? The fact that with her, you get a dynamic story. And that's why we have the film, obviously. Absolutely. There is so much intrigue about Frida. Her politics. She said, she claimed that she was born the year that the Mexican Revolution started just because she wanted to be so aligned with that communist spirit. And that's not actually true. So that sets up this whole system. (laughs) So she's a liar. Yeah, exactly. She's a liar. Mentirosa. She's just fabricating the truth. She's an embellisher, but I think that everybody did. I think that as an artist, you know, you have to sell your story. Like if if, if you're not going to sell your story, then someone has to sell your story. So Basquiat comes in and he's got so much bravado and, you know, I'm going to be, I want to be this guy, you know, and and he becomes that guy. And I feel like be careful what you wish for because you'll actualize it. And the same thing with Frida. I want to be this person and, and she becomes that person. And I think... That is really the truth with many artists. Like, they have to will their own destiny. It's not just la forza del destino, which is the force of destiny, uh, the Mach de Schütze, which is the German version, and la force del destin, which is the same version in French. <laughs> Thank off. you so much. But, no, but it's really, about, it's really about willing it. And I feel like she had all the ingredients to be the quintessential artist and really had to do it. You know, in more than in a cathartic way, but what was she... It gave her a purpose. She, somebody in so much pain, and obviously later in life, the pain was almost intolerable, you know, to where it did affect the painting. Uh, but you, you, she had to go there. She had to, she had to really manifest her visions to relieve her angst because it was so powerfully deep. It was. It was this therapeutic tool. And we have in the painting Broken Column, we see the literalized version of Frida's body, which was so bent and destroyed after the accident. And we see lots of miscarriages show up in these, in a fetus that shows up again and again in her canvases. And so I think that she's just working through a lot and in an emotional way, like you say. And Rivera was very supportive of this and of her pursuits and always said that she was a better painter. And that is something that I think is worth worth acknowledging because in the 1930s, the fact that there would be this reciprocity in a working relationship is pretty progressive. Absolutely. I mean, you know, even though they had a horribly tumultuous relationship, uh, I I do agree. I think he was very supportive of her, as she was of him, clearly. Uh, And I think in the canon of art history at that point, we don't have also a lot of important female painters, you know, Tamara de Lempica, Frida Kahlo, especially, you know, Spanish female painters. And I feel like she is an important painter in the history of not just females and Latina artists, but also just artists in general. Uh, Once again, checking the box off for me as an emotional painter who really resonates uh, with emotion. And and I'm not, you know, you always... You always accuse me. No, I'm just kidding. J'accuse <laughs> uh, of somebody who who just likes you know classical painters, but really not true. I I really gravitate towards the emotional, and I think that she really is the quintessential emotional painter who really tells her entire story. 
uh, especially through the self-portrait, much like Rembrandt did. Rembrandt uh, cataloged his life, his youth, his aging face, and his wrinkling face, his bulbous nose, showing the signs of alcoholism and age catching up to him. I think Rembrandt did it better than any other artist, but certainly Frida does it as well. In a different way, she shows through the self-portrait her story, her pain, her misery, her dynamics, the dynamics of her own inner dealings with her physical body. And I think that's really well described, and I'm glad that you bring up Rembrandt. And it is courageous to showcase the effects of age and wear and alcoholism. But the difference is that Rembrandt is still a white man. And there is a an amount of power that is ingrained in that experience and that identity. And for Frida to still represent herself in seriality in the way that she does as a Mexican woman. I think that that shows another level of courage. Would you put her in your top 20 of all time? Top 20 significant artists. artists yeah. in- or would you like put her in the top 100? Top 100 for sure. Top 50? Yeah. Top 50, top 20. I can't commit to that. Okay. That's fair. I put her in my top 50 for sure. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, you know, and I hate to say this, but in terms of female artists, I'm, Katie Colwitz is my number one. I know. God. Oh, God. Now, I just, isn't it interesting that we can't need... handle how much I love I Katie know. <laughs> I never thought that I, I think would she say... might be my, she's my top five. But is she ahead. really? Yeah, absolutely. Top five artists of all time. I am just so looking forward to a day when we don't need to classify a female painter. But here's why. Because in the context of art history and the canon and the scope of it, there's not a lot of painters early on. They just weren't encouraged to paint. And that's the truth. And so... You know, it's much like other things where all of a sudden now you're getting some fantastic artists because there's so many women painting. I mean, it's 50-50 out there at this point. But there was a time where there was not many women who were uh, encouraged to pick up the paintbrush. It was like, what are you doing? What are you Put that down. Could you imagine the conversations in the house? Like even with somebody like... <laughs> You know, a Katie Kowitz are like, what are you doing? Like, I know. Why are you No, drawing? I couldn't agree with you more. And I don't think that we've escaped that time yet. I still think that we need to have these shows, the have these conversations to isolate women artists because we're not at that place yet where we are able to transcend race or gender. But I'm just looking forward to a day when we get there. And I hope that it's in my lifetime. I think right now it is really important to talk about Kahlo within both the overall arch of art history, but also specifically within this more niche field of female artists. But yeah, it's just something that I think about a lot because I I isolate that community too in the writing that I do and the feminism that I always enact in my teaching. And I think that's because we still need these kinds of, of exercises. But I just hope that one day we don't. Thank God for Lizzie. Thank God for Frida Kahlo and <laughs> thank God for Katie Kowitz and all the lineage of incredible uh, female painters and all painters out there. Thank God for you guys listening to this show. We love doing this show. We think it's important to get the word out, expose you to great artists. And this has been uh, a really enjoy, uh, joyous journey. And 
what's even more joyful is wearing Tommy John underwear. Nothing really holds the package intact. It's like an explosion. L- like a Tommy John. <laughs> and Tommy John, if you go to Tommy John and you put in the code art attack, and if you don't know how to spell that, you're on your own because you're an idiot. You really should be able to spell that. Give me a break. <laughs> art attack, put it in, 20% off, and I'm wearing our, uh, Tommy John right now. I am too. Really? No, yeah. I'm, they are the best underwear out there. Tommy John, I want a little bonus for saying it constantly, but it really is true. So I'm just speaking the truth. Thank you. Thank you, Lizzie, and have a beautiful day.